Peter Silverman is a professor at the Physics Institute of Potsdam University, Germany, as well as an adjunct senior research scientist of Le Monde Dory Earth Observatory of Earth Institute at Columbia University, New York. Silverman's research focuses on climate dynamics and its socio-economic impact. His work is used to advise political and economic stakeholders on issue of climate change. Leverman's has been involved in assessment reports of Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change since 2004. He is a member of scientific advisory body of UNEP Finance Initiatives Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance. He is also the head of Global Economic Stability Project VN. Anders Leverman, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thanks for having me. So your commitment to climate science is longstanding. What are you looking forward to? Hope to take place during COP twenty six. Well, I think the the world as a whole is on a good path towards stabilizing the climate. We have the Paris Climate Agreement, which says that we should stay well below two degrees. And I think the implementation of this is now the crucial point. This is actually. The devil here is in the details, as you say, and this is something that is really not in my expertise. In the sense that how you actually implement this in different stages is a complicated issue and not necessarily informed by climate scientists such as myself. Yes, but you have been a strong advocate for not, you know, you say a lot of times responsibility is put back onto the individual, but we really need this systemic change. And so you are at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. Tell us what you do there and how your work there can be implemented towards a societal and systemic change. We have three working groups in line with the working groups of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change (IPCC), and then we have the Complexity Science work, work Research Domain that I'm heading. We are actually covering the full range of the climate problem from the physical basis. We are computing the tipping points of the climate system. When does the Greenland ice sheet reach a tipping point? When does the West Antarctic ice sheet? Reach a tipping point, and similar aspects. We compute the increase of extreme events under future warming, all the way via the agricultural impacts of climate change, the health impact of climate change, towards the development of sustainable solutions that allow them to curb down the carbon dioxide emissions to zero. Because, and that's a, a physical statement. It's of, of great importance. We basically need to be at zero carbon emissions globally if we want to stabilize the temperature of the planet. So, in in a sense, this is the most important contribution of climate science over the past decades, and it's obviously since it's a physical statement, it's going to hold for the future. It actually has to be basically zero carbon emissions globally, which means that it's not enough to do less. It is important and crucial that we do everything different. In the sense that when I talk to people from industry, it's actually quite a different statement. Whether I tell them that you have to reduce carbon emissions, or whether I tell them that in twenty years' time you have to be at zero carbon emissions, because that means they have to find new paths, they have to innovate in order to 
achieve that goal. And that is generally something that the economy likes. Yeah, it's a great challenge. I would be interested to know what those conversations are. Zero is something that it's scary for some people. I mean, I think you know Hans-Joseph Fell. He was telling me that he felt we could, with implementing certain roadmaps, get 100% renewable energy in a decade. Are you as optimistic or what can we do? Well, this is actually something that I would like the market to decide because we need to obviously keep all the freedoms that we fought for over the last centuries, if you like, we need to keep them in place. We need to keep in place democracy. We need to keep in place the free market, the property rights, and so on. While at the same time, acknowledge that our planet and a number of our resources are finite. So what is done, for example, in the European Union is that there's a cap and trade system in place where we say that each year the industry is allowed less carbon emissions. And there's a clear path down of this cap over the next 20 to 30 years towards a zero carbon emissions. And that gives the economy the opportunity to set the midterm to long-term strategies such that they can actually achieve this while at the same time increasing the prosperity of society and, and the companies. And I think the civil society in form of governments, for example, is supposed to set the goals of what the limits that we can't cross with respect to carbon emissions. And then the speed is, in a sense, decided, I hope, by the speed of the economy racing towards zero emissions. Because if you look into the past, the economy is, is generally faster than we can imagine if you set the right incentive structure. Shaoshui, you wanted to ask. I'm wondering what technologies do you believe that are reliable for helping us to reach the net zero goal? The solutions that I know about are sustainable, large regional solutions. So you you don't try to get carbon-free as an individual in society. You don't even try necessarily to get carbon-free as a country, a small country in Europe. But if you think these solution structures through, on a scale that, for example, covers all of Europe, from the Norwegian hydropower plants, which can store a lot of energy, all the way down to south to countries like Spain and Portugal, then you can buffer a lot of the volatility or the variability that is inherent in a lot of renewable energy technologies, right? Because at the moment, the strong players are solar energy and wind energy. There's hydropower and a number of other smaller contributors. The big question is, can we get these in with a steadiness that allows prosperity of society? And you can achieve this steadiness by storing energy for intermediate periods of time, and by distributing over a large region. That's the similar um, concepts exist for Northern America, for China and larger regions in Asia. Take, for example, we have the jet stream that provides a steady flow of wind. However, this wind stream is actually sometimes tilted towards the north, flowing past Scandinavia, and sometimes it's tilted all the way to the south, to Spain and Greece. If you have wind power plants everywhere, then you can actually capture this steady flow at all times. And that's the reason why we need large regional concepts. 
And if you had asked me a few years ago, and I just wasn't sure, as you say, the stability of energy sources, that there, there might need to be a safety net of nuclear or newer nuclear technologies. Where do you stand on that? It's possible to be 100% renewable without that nuclear safety net? Well, at the moment, the nuclear option is very limited, right, in both percentage and also in the distribution around the world. And the problem with nuclear, there are so many dangers associated with nuclear power. I don't feel comfortable with it, but it's not like a religious belief or something. It's not a very strong opinion. The reason why nuclear cannot really be a global option is because uranium is a finite resource. And, and that means that if you really want to use nuclear on a larger scale, then you very quickly have to go to plutonium. That would kind of mean that whoever you want to give electricity to, you have to give plutonium to. And that's a bit of a tricky question from a security point of view. So people who advocate nuclear power often are also worried about the security aspects of geopolitical, political and security aspects. And that very often ends the conversation simply because you want to give everyone electricity because it's also the engine of societal growth and development, right? With the internet and obviously electricity altogether. But you don't necessarily want to give a plutonium to every country. And that's why I think we should try to find solutions that work rather on collaboration between countries, which allows to have larger net, capture renewable energies over a larger area, which makes it more stable. If you combine it with storage facilities and with a smart grid, then go for the nuclear option. But that's a personal opinion. Yes. Well, it seems like with the advances in renewable energy, it's quite possible without. So it's heartening to know because, as you say, the insecurities. And then you've also called for a greater transparency or publicly available information to do with our supply chains. What does that what does that mean? What do you envision? Well, it's this is kind of a different path. We have to really curb down carbon emissions to zero in order to stabilize our climate, stabilize our planet. That's the first thing. That's the climate change mitigation that we need to do. But at the same time, we already see climate change occurring because we have already warmed our planet by more than one degree Celsius. And that means that weather extremes have already increased. We very notably see the meandering of the jet stream more and more often, that's not statistically proven to be more and more, but it uh, appears to be such that, for example, the economic life and life altogether has you know, stalled twice in, over the last years in, in, from Chicago to New York because of sudden bursts or spells. The question of supply chains is touching a different issue. We have the necessity to prevent climate change that we can't manage anymore, that becomes so strong that we cannot handle its impacts. That's the highest priority that's uh, related to the climate mitigation. That's the question of how fast can we curb down the carbon emissions such that we stabilize the temperature of the planet and thereby our society. But even if we change the way we create energy, and stop emitting carbon, then we have already caused climate change because we have already warmed our planet by more than one degree Celsius. And in principle, not possible to stay well below 1.5 degrees and 
people argue it's even not possible to stay below 1.5 degrees altogether. So we will have further warming in the next decades. And that is something that we have to adapt to. And what we will see is with an intensification of weather extremes, intensification of tropical cyclones, hurricanes, typhoons, intensification of heavy rainfall events, floods, and heat stress, uh, heat waves, we will see a disruption of the economic supply chains. We have seen a globalization of the economic world, and, and that is why it is no longer the only threat to society to be hit directly by climate change impacts. But if something else happens somewhere far away, this can also impact a society much down the supply chain. An example is the big flooding in Thailand in 2014, after which the uh, hard drive in, in the uh, supermarkets in, in Europe and the US doubled in price. That was only a small hiccup, obviously, but you could already feel a remote impact in the supermarket at home, if you like. This was just as, like a small hint on what might lie ahead, especially if the impacts become more and more frequent and stronger and stronger. You can imagine that what can happen is that if impacts occur at different places on the planet, flooding here or a heat wave there, and then they're mixed with political impacts like a strike in some place or the conflict between countries in another place, then these impacts can propagate along the supply chains within the economic world and actually self-amplify because they have something that in physics you would call a resonance effect. These kind of effects we don't see yet very much, but it is quite likely that this will happen in the future if we don't take them into account, if we don't plan for them. And at the moment, the economy does not do that. There's a just-in-time policy with a lot of supplies. Storages are not favored, are not used really anymore because they mean debt capital that isn't working for the company. So it might be that we really need a new way of thinking with an identification in weather extremes in the future. And in terms of not emitting, um, getting to zero emissions, I think that that's really our goal. And then there are some technologies on the horizon, and I don't know how speculative they are, that are trying to cool the atmosphere as opposed to just trying to reduce it. There's been things about putting aerosols or things that will reflect. You know, I don't know what you think about any of these kind of adaptive measures. Unfortunately, they're not just ideas, but there are a lot of places we more closely looked at and even planned and developed as technologies. You have to distinguish two very different ways of so-called geoengineering, um, and that is cooling the planet artificially by some kind of technology. The one category of geoengineering is somehow getting carbon back out of the atmosphere. That is trying to undo what we are doing by burning coal, oil, and gas. And that is actually, in this sense, you know, reversing our action. This can, however, be associated with a lot of technical problems. But you see, we are doing a lot of things to the planet anyway, right? It's not just carbon emissions, it's polluting, it's microplastic and so on and so forth. Getting carbon back out of the atmosphere is in principle worth thinking about while keeping in mind how much you impact you have on the local environment or even the global environment. At the moment, we don't have any technique that is scalable to what we have done in the past or even get close to the amount of carbon that we put into the atmosphere if we continue on our current combustion path, right? So the scale is not there yet, not even remotely. 
The second category, however, is of geoengineering techniques. However, it's much more worrisome. And that is somehow reflecting sunlight back into the cosmos and, and not letting it stay on the ground. Now, these techniques are quite dangerous because they're not undoing what we are doing. They're re reflecting sunlight. So it's a different cooling pattern with which you try to counter the warming pattern, right? That's the one thing. So they're not undoing what we're doing. But more importantly, they generally rely on us constantly providing something, changing something in, in the atmosphere. And the carbon dioxide that we put up in the atmosphere is going to stay there for hundreds of years. So any countermeasure that we would have to do, we would have to be installed also for hundreds of years. And if it's something that relies on societal action, like for example, putting aerosols into the stratosphere, then we have to be sure that this institution that is putting up the aerosols into the stratosphere is going to be in place for hundreds of years. And I don't think we have any institution that has been in place for hundreds of years, perhaps a newspaper or something like that. So specifically, the aerosols in the stratosphere is a very cheap option that has been explored by a lot of bright people, but a lot of problems remain. And I think it is a very, very dangerous idea. And that's a personal opinion. It shouldn't be done because it will not undo what we are currently doing and thereby has the potential to cause serious geopolitical disruption. With these kind of measures, you're basically changing the weather. And the moment a country starts to change the weather, you're in trouble because other countries will say, you are responsible for the weather now. And I don't think anyone wants to be responsible for the weather. I want to ask a personal question. What drew you as a physics to be interested in climate science, climate economy, and since when? I did my PhD in theoretical physics and working on a theory of complexity, if you like. But after the PhD, I, I realized that I really love finding out stuff, but it doesn't really matter what I find out. I just like the process of finding out stuff. So I thought I can equally do this. I can either do this in theoretical physics where it might only have an impact on society within a hundred years or long after I'm dead, or I can do something that's directly interesting for society at the moment. So I worked for 20 years on the physical climate system, on the tipping elements of the climate system, on sea level rise, the Antarctic ice sheet, monsoon systems, and so on and so forth. And I'm still doing this and I, I love this work. But for the last roughly eight to nine years, I've started to concentrate a bit more on societal impacts or societal aspects of climate change, because a lot of the mathematics that we developed in, in complexity science is also applicable to societal dynamics. And uh, continuing on that personal level, um, you're in Germany, uh, also you teach in America as well. Of course, the Green Party there has been a great inspiration to us around the world. But on a personal level, you know, what, as you see all the changes that's happening in the natural world, you know, what are some of those memories that you have, the experiences that you have in, you know, you have a family that you feel that we're at risk of losing, that were so important for you? A lot of people think climate change is about avoiding the extinction of mankind. And in my opinion, that's wrong. 
This is not what it is about. The climate change is about putting pressure on society and disrupting society to an extent that it can't function properly anymore. So my greatest fear is that if we don't combat climate change, the weather extremes will hit us with a frequency and intensity that we will not be able to recover after each impact. And then we will start to fight with each other. There's already now, there's evidence that weather changes, temperature changes, climate variability is actually causing conflicts within countries and between countries. And I think that societal achievements of the last centuries are so precious and so important that we need to preserve this at all costs and further develop it, reduce the imbalance on the planet and the inequality between people, get further ahead in society towards a better future. And in my opinion, the greatest threat of climate change is that if we don't tame it, it will disrupt this development of humanity and will plunge us all into wars and civil wars. Yes, that is true. I was wondering if there was something about the beauty of nature you wanted to share with us. It's something that keeps makes you hopeful in terms of what we preserve. I'm actually very hopeful that we preserve. I'm not really a nature person. It's a funny thing, I guess, as someone working on environmental problems. I like to be in nature, obviously, but it's not my, my dearest thing. I'm worried about humans and society. And obviously, it's not our right and it's not ethical to destroy nature on, on our path towards prosperity. That is definitely not an ethical thing to do. And that's what we need to avoid. Yes. And so just thinking on, on that note about the future, as I said, we have enormous societal change, as you say, that needs to take place. What are the key things that you concentrate on? And I guess, and your message to young people, what would you like them to know, preserve? We have a dilemma in society. We haven't solved yet. We need to solve it in order to go into the future properly in kind of harmony with nature and in harmony with each other. And this dilemma is that we are living on a finite planet with finite resources, but it is somehow in human nature to constantly evolve and change. Every generation wants to be different than the generation before. Every person needs, to, needs a reason to get up in the morning and do something. We cannot, you know, in a democratic world, we cannot prescribe what this motivation should be, what these people should be doing. But at the same time, we have to respect the limits of our planet. And this dilemma of perpetual motion within society and the finiteness of our planet has led to a number of ideas. For example, people have said we cannot grow economically all the time. And, and that has led to the idea of degrowth in, in the economy. However, if growth is the engine, the motivation of humans to get up in the morning and do something, then that's nothing that you really want to avoid, right, in order to get the society functioning. But if this growth is then not a decoupled from any destruction of nature, of any decoupled of any use of resources, but is simply gets the meaning of a battering of life, then it becomes interesting. Then we might actually be able to resolve this apparent dilemma. Because what people consider to be a better life is changing all the time. So 
if the value system is evolving with each generation into the future, we can actually have perpetual motion within society towards a better world if this better changes all the time and at the same time keep the limits of our planet, keep the integrity of our planet as the highest priority. I don't know whether that's understandable. It's quite a complicated concept it's from complexity science and it's called the folding principle of chaos theory. But you can imagine that, for example, culture, we do this all the time. Miles Davis is not better than Mozart just because he was later, right? But the generation considered jazz to be an innovation, something new, something wonderful. And there are a lot of people who, who love jazz and don't like classics, right? So we are in, in, in arts and culture, we're doing this already for centuries, millennia, perhaps forever. And we start to do this also in economics. The new generation is not necessarily interested in, that, that obviously is diverse around the planet, right? But in Germany, the new generation is not necessarily interested in having a bigger car than the neighbor or a bigger car than the um, parents' generation, but they're more interested in getting comfortably and fast from one place to the other, independent of the means. So that's a shift in the value system that actually uh, means that I can make my world better without using more resources. And that's kind of my personal way out of the dilemma. That's what brings me hope. And, and I think is the new principle that we need to adapt and replace the perpetual growth with the principle of folding. Well, I think that's a beautiful and much needed principle. It's really a rethinking not just of our systems generally, but our value systems. And to end this kind of cycle of extractivism, it's really very democratic and more egalitarian. And I'm just so hopeful and glad that we have those like you and at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research that help us envision that and to get there. So Professor Anders Leverman and the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, thanks for all you do to help institutions and individuals create sustainable futures and tackle the most important issue of our time. We appreciate you sharing your visions of the future. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your commitment to make it a better place for future generations. Thanks for listening. One Planet Podcast is produced by the Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Xiaoxia He with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Xiaoxia He. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Sarah Brown. Thin Music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the Climate Change Solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.